The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Have you ever been online and noticed somebody post something? It happens pretty often. Like you'll, you'll read this post and it will say, do not open any messages from me or do not watch any videos that I sent. I've been hacked. Or this happens every now and then. And if, you're, and if you're young, you're probably like, oh, here it goes, another old person who doesn't know how to use the internet. Um, but any, anytime this message happens, um, I, one of the things that I, w- I was recently thinking is, what if the response to that happening was a, a message popped up in our inbox or a comment showed up on our thread, and it was Mark Zuckerberg? Mark Zuckerberg's the CEO of Facebook, and so one of the wealthiest people in the world, one of the, the CEOs of one of the largest organizations there is. And so what if when that happened, that was the response? Like the CEO got involved, popped up in your inbox and said, don't worry, I've got you covered. And then he gets on the phone and gives you a call and says, all right, we're going to take care of this. And what did you click on? And like he started dealing with the problem. Like most of us would probably be a little bit surprised. Like the CEO of Facebook would have more important things to deal with than my inability to properly use the internet. Like he's got much bigger problems to deal with. He probably has assistants who report to assistants who report to assistants who report to assistants who can be much better equipped to handle that kind of problem. I mean, you'd be flattered, but it seems a little bit insignificant for him to deal with that kind of problem. Well, when Jesus begins his ministry, and when he begins doing miracles, the very first miracle that gets recorded for us fits into that same kind of category. It feels a little bit insignificant. Like the very first thing, like all the things that we know about what Jesus would come to do and who he is, the first miracle that Jesus gets involved with is a catering snafu. Like he seems to care enough about this thing that is really a little bit menial. Like for the Messiah, who they've been waiting thousands of years to arrive, the first thing he does is water into wine. Like that, that seems a bit trivial, If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,648. Today we are beginning a new series called Signs and Wonders. And throughout the series, we are going to look at the miracles of Jesus throughout the book of John. And what we know about signs is signs always point to something. Signs tell us that there's something coming up. There's something ahead that we should be aware of. And so in all of these miracles, John refers to them as signs because there is more to that than meets the eye than just what is happening. There's what happens. There's the miraculous. There's the wonder. But it's also pointing to something bigger, more significant going on. And so this first miracle is a miracle that seems a little bit menial, a little bit insignificant. Yet it's in this insignificant moment that it points to something. And so why does Jesus do this? Why does he get involved at this wedding with something that seems so unimportant? A few weeks ago, I was praying with my oldest son, Eli, at bedtime. And one of the ways that we've been praying is we've been um, looking back on the day and then just talking and listening to God when it came to the events and things that happened throughout the day. And so this particular day was difficult for Eli. He had a hard day at school. Um, And so we were talking about some of the challenges and some of the things that came up in the day at school. And so one of the burdens that he was feeling is is he was upset because one of his closest friends that he was sitting by in school, he wasn't going to be able to sit by this friend anymore. And so we're talking about that and talking about the feelings and the emotions and talking to Jesus about that and bringing those, um, bringing those burdens to Jesus. And so in the midst of this conversation, I said to, to Eli, I said, well, how about we ask Jesus, like, what should we do? 
like, because Jesus is full of good ideas. How about we ask Jesus and listen to Jesus and just see, maybe he'll have some ideas that can help us out with this. And so Eli, I mean, he's a, he's a logical thinker, and so he's thinking about this. And he's like, well, it's not going to work. And so, and so, and so he, and he understands, like, he knows his teacher pretty well, and she already decided you're not sitting by this friend. And so, and so he said, well, that's impossible. I'm not going to sit by my friend anymore. And so I immediately responded with something that I regretted saying right away. I said, well, that's good because Jesus loves to do impossible things. And then immediately I start thinking like, oh, God, what did I just tell my seven-year-old? Because now, like, his faith is going to hinge on the results of this prayer. And so I, and, and like, I said the words like I believed it, but I wasn't sure that I actually believed it. Like, if you know what, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, like, in my head, I believe Jesus does impossible things. But when, if you actually ask me how I pray for things, it's like, well, Jesus, this is impossible, and I know you can do this, but you don't really usually do these kind of things. Like, Jesus doesn't usually do the impossible things. And so when I said Jesus loves to do impossible things, it's like, well, I really meant Jesus sometimes does impossible things, but the words that came out were not that. And so I walked back to my room after we prayed for Jesus to do what Eli felt like was impossible. And I'm like, God, please help me out on this. Like, God, like, like, what, like, I don't know why I was saying, and I'm like, God, like, and I know this seems a little bit menial and, and pretty trivial. Like, you've got way more important problems to get involved with, but can you help out here? So a few days later, we get a phone call from Eli's teacher. And so she's calling about a number of things that we've been talking to her about. And so it has nothing to do with, with Eli's friend, but she wants to talk to us about a number of things. And so it happens to be in the, in the midst of this conversation, she mentioned something to Jessica. She said, well, today was actually a really good day for Eli. And I think the thing that helped is I ended up moving this kid. And when I moved that kid, I had to move another kid. And then I moved this kid who, who Eli really loves to sit by. <laughs> and I'm overhearing this and I'm like, you've got to be joking me. Like, like, seriously, like, that's what's happening in this conversation. And so then I, and I go and I pick up Eli, and I'm like, Eli, did you get to sit by your friend today? And, he, and like, he has the biggest smile. And I'm like, Eli, like, you said that was impossible. He's like, I know. I was like, Eli, that's what we prayed for. And he's like, I know. And, and now I don't know, like, if that's, is that a miracle? Is that coincidence? I, I don't know what category you want to put it into. I, all that I'm saying is Eli said it was impossible. I said Jesus loves to do impossible things. We prayed for it to happen, and something happened. Like, I, I don't know what category you want to put that into, but it seems like there are times where insignificant things God cares about. And isn't that what we see in the book of John, chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine? It seems like there's something that's pretty insignificant that Jesus, for some reason, gets involved with. And I don't know how God chooses what he chooses to do. I don't know why it's an answer to that prayer, but then there are other prayers that seem like they're more significant and more waiting. And I don't know like, why when you pray for certain things when it comes to justice and evil, why, like, why I don't always get the answer that I want. But I do know that sometimes these menial and insignificant things that God cares about even them. And so in John chapter 2, we see just that as the first thing that Jesus does when it comes to the miraculous. The first miracle. And so I want to read this text, and I'll begin in verse 1. It says this. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do Whatever he tells you. Now let's stop there just for, for a second. Mary says to, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Which is a little bit surprising. Like why would Mary actually say to the servants, do whatever he tells you, after she just talked about what she talked about with Jesus? 
Like Jesus just had a conversation and basically said to her, dear woman, why are you bothering me? I've got more important things to do. This is a little bit beneath me. I'm not getting involved. And so then Mary's response is naturally, well, just do whatever he says. Like that doesn't make sense. Like, like Mary should be saying, all right, well, if Jesus says to, like he's going to do something, well, then you should listen. But that's not what Mary says. She doesn't explain anything. She just says, if Jesus tells you to do something, do, do it. Doesn't she realize that Jesus might not tell them to do what she wants him to say? Doesn't she realize that he might not get involved in the way that she wants? Like doesn't, she, doesn't she realize that Jesus might not be sending the servants out to 7-Eleven to buy some box Cabernet to solve the problem at the wedding? Like doesn't she realize that she doesn't know what Jesus is going to do? But that's the point. Mary's not focused on what Jesus might do or might not do. She knows who Jesus is. She's not focused on the outcome of her request. She's focused on the person she asked. So she doesn't know what the result's going to be. She doesn't know if Jesus is going to do something at this wedding, but she knows who she's asking. And so because she knows who she's asking, she tells the servants, if he says to do something, you should listen because he knows what he's talking about. See, when you trust who God is, you'll be able to follow even when you don't know what he will do. And isn't that the challenge when we pray for the impossible? That we don't know how God's going to respond. We don't know what his answer is going to be. We don't know what the results will look like. But for Mary, when she asks Jesus to do something, she doesn't know what he's going to do, but she certainly knows who he is. She certainly knows that he cares and he knows and he listens. Let's continue. Verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Let's pause there. Now because of what Mary suggests to the servants, the servants end up doing exactly what she said. Jesus said, fill the jars with water. And that's what they do. Like, and if I'm the servant, like I, I don't know if I would have done that. Like, maybe eventually I would have filled the jars with water, but, like, I would need a little bit more explanation first. Like, I'd want some answers. Like, all right, Jesus, can you explain to me a little bit what's going on here? Like, if I'm a servant, like, you know what's happening at the party. You know they're running out of wine. You know what people are talking about. And so Jesus, like, was just requested by Mary to get involved to do something. Jesus turns to the servant and says, how about you fill those jars with water? And I would be, like, as a servant, I'd be like, all right, can you, like, why? Like, how is that going to help? But that's not what they do. They just fill, Jesus says, fill the jars with water. They fill the jars with water. See, obedience doesn't require an explanation when it's built on trust. They don't ask for an explanation. They just do it because, why? Because they trust that Jesus is worth listening to. See, and I don't know about you, but often when I read the Bible, there are things that the Bible tells me I should do that I just, I, I'm just asking God, God, can you give me a little bit more explanation to that? Like, God, I know what you say I should do, but can you really, like, help unpack that a little bit? And so when, like, the Bible says love your enemies, I want to nuance that a little bit more. Like, I know you say love your enemies, but, I mean, what does it mean to really love somebody? And I can love them without liking them, right? 
And who, like, who really is my enemies? And how far do we really take that? Like, like, how much do we risk to love our enemies? And do I really have to love them? Like, do I really have to love the people who don't look like me or act like me or believe like me or think like me or vote like me? Do, like, what do I do with that category? Or the Bible talks about things like sexual integrity and it will begin, and, and Jesus will care more about our, our hearts that even the things we do, and Jesus will take, it's not just consent, but Jesus will say that I care about your integrity, that not only do I care what you do with other people, but I care even for what happens when you don't affect anyone but yourself. And Jesus will challenge us that, that even when marriage gets difficult and we're ready to call it quits, Jesus says don't quit. Even if it's not making you happy, fight for each other, like, like when it comes to those things, like, all right, God, can you give me a little explanation to that? Can you help me understand that? I want to nuance that. I want to understand it. Like, I, I don't want to just do it. You need to explain to me what you want me to do before you expect me to do it, right? And if you've ever worked with kids, like in a classroom or maybe as a parent, you understand that you don't always care about the explanation, do you? No, you want obedience. Why? Because you know what's best for a kid when you tell them what to do. And so when I tell my kids don't run into the street, I expect obedience, not an explanation. And so they run into the street. I don't want to have to explain it. I just want them to listen because I know what's actually best for them. And so maybe in time they will grow in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and they'll know why I asked them not to do certain things. Or maybe they learn the hard way, like maybe they spent the night at grandma's and they ate too much sweets and then they threw up in the night and then suddenly they're filled with regret and they realize that when mommy and daddy say don't eat too much sweets before bed, they actually knew what they were talking about. Isn't that the same for us? That God tells us what's best for us. He lays it out for us in the way it looks to love God and love other people and he makes it clear. And we're often saying, God, I just want a little bit more explanation. God, I, like, why? Why is this what you say is best for me? And sometimes we learn with time and wisdom and maturity. Sometimes we learn because we, we made choices that we regret. And maybe for some of you, you're missing out on what's best for you because you're waiting for an explanation. Maybe you are waiting on God to better explain himself and Jesus is saying, I've already told you what to do. And what if you're missing out on what's best for you because you're waiting for God to explain something that he already told you to do? Let's continue in verse 8. Then Jesus told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And so again, this is a sign, and a sign is pointing to something. And so it's not just about water and wine, but it's about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And Jesus here is doing something new. He's taking these stone jars, which were used for the rituals of purification, and he's doing something with them that it, they were never used for. And not only is he doing something new, he's doing something better. He's doing something more significant than what these jars were actually used for. And so these stone jars were jars that were used for ritual purification. And Jesus, in ma making this miracle happen, is saying he is going to do something that religion can't do. 
Because these religious rituals might care about the outward appearances. It might care about the cleanliness. And you'll even see this tension all throughout Jesus' ministry. Because Jesus is Jewish and in his interactions with the religious leaders, he's often calling them out saying, you care more about your outward appearance than your your heart. And so Jesus is doing this in this miracle. He's pointing to this saying, I offer something better than these traditions and these rituals, than just an outward cleanliness. I offer an inward transformation. Jesus actually at one point quotes Isaiah 29, which says this. It says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If you've ever been frustrated with religious people because they say one thing and do another... Or because they seem like they have all the answers, but then when you see the way they live their life, they seem in conflict. Jesus isn't having that either. Like that's the thing that Jesus often criticizes the most. And the people he most criticizes are the religious people. And Jesus says, I've come and, and, and although these people might honor me with their lips, I don't want to care about the things that people say on the inside. I want to draw hearts to me. It's not about saying and doing the right thing. It's about a heart that trusts Jesus, which will change the things that we say and do. But Jesus is more interested in the heart first. And so these six stone jars, Jesus isn't interested on what's on the outside of the jars, what the jars were typically used for. He's interested on what's going to happen on the inside. And now six also just so happens to be the biblical number of incompletion. And so as Joe, Jesus is coming here and saying, all right, well, what these jars could do, it might, have, it might have been good, it might have been helpful, it might have even been a valuable part of the Jewish tradition, but he's saying, I'm doing something better because it couldn't quite do what you needed it to do. And so Jesus offers something better. Paul in Corinthians describes us as being, as holding treasure in jars of clay. Or there's this connection here that when Jesus makes a change in the inside of these jars, so also Jesus does with us. And I love the descriptor for how much water is here. The text tells us they were filled to the brim. Like I picture, like there is so much water in these jars that just by walking by the jars, like just moving just enough, like wine would start spilling over the top. Like just in case you aren't sure that there's going to be enough wine, Jesus is doing something excessive. Like he's going far above and beyond what is necessary to make sure there's enough wine at this wedding. And some of you need that excessive kind of grace. Because some of you don't believe that it could be enough for you. Like some of you believe, all right, Jesus is good and he's got some good ideas and some revolutionary things and he does some miracles, but they don't seem to ever help me. And some of you have some stuff going on like in your heart. You're like, all right, but you don't know the dark places in my soul. You don't know the depression that I'm experiencing. You don't know the things that I'm afraid of. You don't know the things I've said, the things I've done. You don't know the hurt that I've caused. And Jesus is going excessive in this miracle to say that there is no amount of sin or brokenness that is too big for me. And not only that, but Jesus is excessive because not only that, he says, not only is there enough for you, but there's some left over. Like I have enough grace for all of the most significant pain and brokenness in your life and for the things that seem like they're insignificant. And so Jesus does something excessive here and he says, watch, watch what I can do with these stone jars. Jesus created somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine. It's two pallets of wine. It would be 757 bottles of wine. 
Like he goes over the top. Which is the way he acts with us. When Jesus forgives your sin, he doesn't just forgive some of it. And do you realize how excessive that is to say that Jesus forgives all your sin? Jesus has not only forgiven your past sin, but he's forgiven you of the sins that you haven't thought of yet. Right? That's ridiculous. Like Jesus is a step ahead of us already forgiving us for the things that we didn't even know were coming. When it comes to the pain and the grief that you experience, Jesus is excessive in his gifts to you so that he can give you even greater joy than the pain you've experienced. When it comes to the shame that you live in and the things that you believe about yourself, Jesus is so excessive that he will speak to you and whisper to you in your ear who you are until you believe it. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. He is always excessive in his grace. And he does that so when you experience what Jesus does, what you will find is that it's not coming just to do cool tricks or to have compelling ideas, but he's coming and he will change you from the inside out. That's why John says about this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. And he says the signs point to his glory and his disciples believed in him. When Jesus showed up at this wedding, the presence of God was made known. And so we see Mary trust who Jesus is even before she knows what Jesus is going to do. We see the servants trust and obedient to Jesus even before they really know what's going on. And we see Jesus here making his presence known because when Jesus shows up, he shows up. When Jesus shows up, he always shows up. And so it doesn't matter how big the mess is. When Jesus shows up, he gets to work. When Jesus shows up in your sin, he begins forgiving and wiping the slate clean. When Jesus shows up in your sin, shame he rewrites the things that you believe about yourself when Jesus shows up he always shows up and he goes uh, far above and beyond what we could even imagine and I love how John like there like we could spend weeks on this text alone looking at all the signs because signs again are pointing to something and so John even all throughout this is weaving little hints and saying oh look at this look at this look at this things that we might not even catch on like for example just one of these ideas John says this miracle happens on the third day like, oh, that, like, that's funny. Like, we, like, other things that are kind of important happen on the third day. I mean, the obvious, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. But it's not just that, actually. Jonah was spit out the belly of a whale on the third day. And, and think about Jonah. Like, Jonah was in the whale because he believed that God's grace couldn't be big enough for certain people. And so on the third way, he gets spit out of the belly of the whale and gets sent to the people that he did not want to extend God's grace to. And God says, you're going there anyway. And so on the third day, God makes it known that his grace is far more excessive than, than we even thought. On the third day is when Moses came down from the mountain. So Moses was in the, on the mountain in the presence of God, being given the word of God and the commands of God. And so he comes down from the mountain with some things that he wants people to obey despite what they believe or understand about them. So Moses, in the presence of God and asking God's people to be obedient without explanation. And so Jesus shows up at this wedding. Jesus, who is God in flesh, present at the wedding. And when Jesus shows up, he shows up at this wedding. He changes the wedding. He changes the experience for the guests. 
Now, I don't know where you're at, but maybe for you, like maybe for you and your relationship with Jesus, you're just thinking, God, I want to be used by you. I want to experience your power working through me for other people. I think you can see that in this story. Because if that's you, if you are longing to be used by God, the place that you find yourself in the story is the servant. Because without the servants, the miracle actually doesn't happen. I mean, it's God's power. It's God, the one doing the miraculous. But for some reason, Jesus chooses to use these servants to make that happen. And so maybe for you, like, I want to desperately be used by Jesus. And Jesus is saying, just hand out some water. And you're like, like, well, well, like, well, how is that going to work? And you say, I don't look for the explanation. Just obey to me. Like, just listen. And so fill these jars with water and start handing it out and watch what I can do. Maybe Jesus is asking you to do something and you need to stop asking him to explain it and just do it. Start handing out the water and watch what he'll do. Or maybe for you, like you feel like you've been at this party and the party is coming to a screeching halt and it's not supposed to end yet. Like you feel like you are watching the joy seep out of the party. And maybe you've begun to hear the chatter of what this means about you, the party planner. And so you are experiencing embarrassment and you're hearing the gossip and the lies of what people have to say about you because this brings about shame about you and about your marriage and about your family. And so, you're, and so you are beginning to stress out and hear these lies. And so Jesus shows up to you at this party with a, and says, I, just have a drink. And when he hands you that bottle of wine, he's saying to you, all right, you, you may feel like it's all falling apart, but it hasn't. In fact, not only is this wine, but like this wine is just for you. Like I made it, and it's not just any wine. It is the very best wine, and I've given it for you because you are that important to me. When God shows up, his presence changes a place. And I wonder what would happen if we longed for that in our life. Longed for the presence of God to show up in our lives personally. To experience the presence of God in our homes and to watch how God would transform our homes. And to see God move in and throughout a community because he was present in that place. To see what would happen when we experience the presence of God in our church. Like imagine how that would change things. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians has this incredible text that I think is fitting considering the miracle that Jesus does here with wine. And Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In, in other words, he's saying, all right, just as you, as you can get consumed by wine, and just as that wine changes the way you think and the way you talk, the way you act, he says, I want you to be people who are filled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who can, whose very presence will transform the way you see, the way you talk, the way you live, the way you act. And that will be experienced by everyone who comes into contact with you. I once heard a preacher talking about this text that described it and asked it an important question that I think was incredibly challenging. And he said, what, what would be more offensive to you? Would you be more offended if I were to stand up here inebriated, drunk and speaking foolishness, unable to walk off the stage, or would you be more offended if completely sober-minded I preached eloquently but devoid of the power of the Holy Spirit? What would bother you more? May we be a place that longs for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit because when the Holy Spirit shows up, 
He speaks and he works and he moves. And so to state the obvious, the way drunk happens is you drink and you keep on drinking. Right? And that's probably not a surprise to most of you. You're smart. And so you know. Right? That's how drunk happens. You drink. And so when Paul says be filled with the Holy Spirit, he means I want you to drink in what God is doing. I want you to experience the work of God. I want you to read and hear God in the scriptures. I want you to pray and seek God. I want you to listen to his voice. I want you to gather in worship. I want you to be in conversations with other believers. Because as you do those things, as you drink in the work of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is transforming you. And when you do, Paul then says, don't sober up, keep on drinking. He would say it this way in 1 Thessalonians. He says, do not quench the spirit. In other words, as you experience the work of God moving in a place, as you experience what God is doing, don't sober up, don't extinguish the flames, don't pour water on it, pour gas on it. And watch what God does because that is exactly what happens When Jesus shows up at this wedding, Jesus shows up and his presence changes things. And the work of God in that place moves and works. And so my challenge to you is be filled with the presence of God. It's the promise we have. Seek that. Thirst for that and don't extinguish the work that God wants to do. I'm going to pray for us and then we will prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who shows up. That you show, that you show up in our midst because you promise where two or three are gathered. That you show up in bread and wine. That you've showed up here on earth working and moving. That you show up in our hearts. God, we thank you for being present, for loving us. We pray that you would be at work in this place, that you would be moving, that we would be a church that longs for your presence. That longs to see your presence moving in a place, to seeing hearts transformed by you, to be a place that experiences that and thirsts for that and fights for that. Jesus, as we come before you, we know so often we don't. There are times where we quench the work of the Holy Spirit. There are times where we doubt it, where we don't believe it, where we don't long for it. There are times where we don't love you the way we should, times we don't love other people. And so God, I pray that you would forgive us for those moments. And as we gather together and as we confess to you, which just means being honest about our own sins, God, I pray that you would speak to us and bring to our hearts and our minds the times where we have fallen short. Reveal those things to us so that we might confess them and cling to you. The promise of Jesus is that the grace he offers to you doesn't ever run out. Jesus is excessive in the grace he wants to give to you. And he speaks to you this morning that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.